Okay, how loud am I? That little whisper, you can all hear it, can't you? Well, if you will, please turn your Bibles to John chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 13 to 25. This is the story where Jesus goes in and cleanses the temple. The title of the sermon is Jesus versus Religion, and if I could have put it in the bulletin this way, it would be Jesus versus religion, real small, and the question mark would be this big. In 2012, a man by the name of Jefferson Bethke, I think that's how you say his name, he wrote a poem that I believe portrays much of the modern, modern way of looking at what we would call religion. If you have social media, you probably heard this, it went around that's where I first heard it. But here's, here's a few excerpts from this poem. He says, what if I told you that Jesus came to abolish religion? He says, if religion is so great, why has it started so many wars? Why does it build churches but fails to feed the poor? Religion might preach grace, but another thing they practice. If grace is water, then the church should be an ocean. It's not a museum for good people, it's a hospital for the broken. Religion says slave, Jesus says son. Religion puts you in bondage while Jesus sets you free. Religion makes you blind, but Jesus makes you see. Now there's a lot of things that, that I actually like about this poem. And I didn't even quote half of it, it's like two pages long. <laughs> I like how, how he confronts fakeness in religion, how he confronts caring about external things, how he confronts uh, maybe some legalism in this. I really love the line where he says, if grace is water, the church should be an ocean. Now, that's a keeper from that poem. But I think he's here making the all-too-common modern mistake of hyper-focusing on one truth and emphasizing it to the, to the place where you slide over so far the other way that you fall into the ditch of error. I think that's what he's doing here. Jesus does not hate religion. God established true religion. He established a religion that is designed to point you to a relationship with Jesus Christ. Relationship with Jesus and religion are not opposed to each other. Now, when you read certain parts of the Gospels, Jesus did come out swinging towards the religious establishment. But it was not because he hated religion. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to explain what Jesus is doing when he does this with a, with a really fun, silly illustration. Everybody always remembers the silly illustrations. So I, I texted my friend Jeremy Luckadoo. There he is, okay. He's not sitting in his normal spot. I texted him this week and I said, Jeremy, what is your favorite tool? Now, I mean, I did not get an immediate answer. Because for Jeremy, it's like asking you, what, who's your favorite kid? Uh, if you don't know Jeremy, he loves welding. That might seem like an odd thing to love, but Jeremy loves welding. So his, he finally said his favorite tool was his Miller welder. So if, you've, if you know anything about Miller welders, I think they're like a commercial grade welder. 
very high quality. He would want you to take very good care of it if you borrowed it. And so the illustration is, let's say I borrow Jeremy's Miller welder. And welders usually have these, these boxes on them, and, and, you know, the welder comes out of that, and you weld with that. You see how much I know about welding. But let's say Jeremy comes over to my house, and I've got my knee up on the welder and a two-by-four on it and a circular saw, and I'm just cutting, cutting boards with it. How do you think Jeremy would feel about that? He probably would get pretty angry. Now, would his anger be the result of him hating the welder? No. He hates my misusing the welder. I am not using that welder for its purpose. What should I be using? Sawhorses, yeah. <laughs> Which are a lot, lot, more, uh, lot less expensive and you can damage them and replace them easily, but not as welder. <clears throat> well, this is the attitude of Jesus. Jesus has great zeal for the truth. And so he becomes angry when he goes into the place of religion and he sees God's people misusing that place of religion. So let's look at this passage in John chapter 2, verses 13 to 25. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to the temple. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now, when, we, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed his name in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now, I want to kind of start by painting a picture for you guys. Let's say that you came to church this morning. Art Dunn's usually the first one here, or no, Peter's the first one here. And let's say just you start kind of trickling into church, and you're walking back in the back hallway close to the, to the nursery, and you hear somebody back there throwing toys, turning over the rocking chairs, knocking over the little table that we just bought, throwing the snacks around, and just yelling at everybody and saying, get out of here. And then you kind of get closer, you come around, and you look in the peek in the door, and it's Debbie Butler. 
Now, those of you who know Debbie Butler got that. If you don't know Debbie Butler, ask someone to introduce you to Debbie Butler, and you will understand that illustration. If you, if you encountered that event, you would in your heart say, I have got to know why Debbie Butler got this mad. And I've got to make sure that I don't do whatever it was that made Debbie Butler this mad. What could make such a gentle person this angry? Well, in this passage, we have the most gentle person, the most lowly person, the most humble person ever, making a whip, driving people out, turning over tables, throwing money on the ground. And it probably would be wise for us to ask, why? Why is Jesus doing this? Well, of course, I'm not going to answer that question first. But to help us understand why, we first have to ask ourselves, what were these people doing in the temple? Well, the Passover was one of the annual feasts where no matter where you lived in the empire, let's say you lived up up in Ephesus or in Macedonia, you you were expected to travel to Jerusalem and worship at that annual event. And there were merchants who came up with a good idea. They said, let's create a marketplace so that pilgrims don't have to transport cattle. Could you imagine transporting cattle or sheep for that many miles? There's no, there's no convenience stores. There's no places to, to, to stop and get supplies. So it, it was a very smart idea to have a market so that people could buy animals to sacrifice with. Now, there were, there were also these people called money changers, and the reason that they were there was because the annual feast was a good time for people to pay what's called a temple tax. Now, the temple tax is not something evil. It was, it was necessary so that they could keep up the maintenance and the function of the temple. And so the reason there were money changers is because because the temple did not accept all kinds of coins from every realm. There was a certain type of coin, I can't remember the name of it, but it was of a certain value and weight that they desired. And so you had to, you had to exchange your coins for that one coin, and, and the money changers probably did. They probably made some money, which wasn't terrible. <clears throat> now the next question we have to ask is where? Where exactly did this take place? And John and the other Gospel writers just simply just say the temple. It took place in the temple. Now, I don't think that, that this stuff was going on in the Holy of Holies or in the area where the altars were. Most people believe this was happening in, in the outer court. The outer court, which is also called the court of the Gentiles. And there were several courts, and that's why I gave you that sheet of paper so you could look and see. There were several courts surrounding the temple. Uh, There were courts for women. There were courts for men. There were places for for lepers to be cleansed. There were even special courts for Nazarite vows to be released. And the purpose of these courts was to help people prepare their hearts because it wasn't all about the external motions of worship. They They were there to help you prepare your hearts to, to come into the presence of worshiping God. 
And in verse 16, Jesus tells these people who are trading in these courts, take these things away. And he's talking about the, the animals and the commerce. He says, do not make my father's house a house of trade. Now, what Jesus is not saying here, he's not saying, I hate commerce. I hate, I hate business. I hate trade. What he's saying is, I hate the misuse of the place of religious worship not being used the way that my father intended it to be used. This is not a Messiah who came to abolish religion. This is a Messiah who came to purify and set back on course true religion. Jesus cares about the hearts of Jews. He cares about the hearts of Gentiles, lepers, and everyone else who approaches God in worship. He wants them to have time to take that worship seriously. And after this outburst, the upset Jews come to Jesus and, and they demand that he give a sign. Give us a sign to tell us why you were doing these things, why you have the, prove to us you have the authority to do these things. And what's Jesus' response to them? He says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Of course, the Jews didn't understand this. They didn't get into some, like, unnecessary discussion about how long it took to build the temple and how are you going to rebuild a temple in three days that took so much time to build. But John tells us that Jesus was talking about the temple of his body. And the good thing here is that, that later on, the disciples got this. After Jesus rose from the dead, they remembered him saying this, and they said that's what he meant. And it increased their faith. Jesus cared about how the Jews approached the temple, not because the stone and the marble were sacred, but because what they signified was sacred. They pointed to what was sacred. The sacrifices, the priests, the incense, the bread, the drink offerings, the grain offerings, all of those external ceremonies were whispering to the worshiper, Jesus. See Jesus. All of that Old Testament religion was begging the worshiper to see Jesus, to see them, their sin, to see their need, to understand that they need the true temple, Jesus Christ. But the Jews were not using it for that purpose. They had turned it into the hustle and bustle of a marketplace. And missing was silent reflection, prayer, the whispers of Scripture, repentance, maybe the quiet singing of a psalm. And in place of these things that would help prepare the heart was commerce, industry, roadblocks, that hinder hearts from coming to Jesus. Jesus knew the purpose of the court was to prepare hearts, to point them to salvation. And that is why the misuse of the temple could not be left uncorrected. Jesus' blood boiled, his knuckles whitened, and he enacted a form of church discipline which should have shaken them out of their malaise 
But I hope if it didn't shake them out of it, it shakes us out of it. Why was the most meek and lowly and gentle man driven to anger? Because he hates fake religion. And he has great zeal and he has great love for God's prescribed religious worship because it is the means of salvation. It is the path to a relationship with God. Sadly, the rage that Jesus expressed this day, it did not stop fake religious people from seeking signs from Jesus and following him for the wrong reasons. And that brings us to our second point. Jesus has knowledge of what's truly in our hearts. Beginning in verse 23, John says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name. When they saw the signs that he was doing, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Anyone here ever heard of Ray Comfort? Lots of people. Yeah, maybe two or three people. Okay. <clears throat> Ray Comfort is an apologist. He's an apologist. He's an evangelist. He'll, he stands on the street, and he talks to people. Uh, he has a ministry. I don't know what the name of his ministry is now, but he used to be in one called Way of the Master. Well, Ray Comfort is well known for asking two questions to try to get people's hearts to engage with God. And here's the first question. Do you consider yourself to be a good person? What do you think most people's answer to that question is? Yes, of course I do. Now, these people will, will say yes, and, and their way of determining that they are a good person is it's based on on human moral standards. You know, things like, uh, well, I'm nice to people, I'm not Hitler, uh, those kinds of things. His second question is, this is the tough one, do you think God considers you a good person? And most people say yes to that too. And, and then Ray will very gently start going through the Ten Commandments. And he doesn't just talk about the externals of the Ten Commandments. He gets into the people's hearts and says, well, Jesus said if you do this in your heart, it's just as though you committed murder. And so he, he just totally wrecks their, their own view of their goodness. Well, why do you think Ray Comfort does this? And, and how is this a good strategy to share the gospel? Well, it's because people will not turn to Christ if they don't feel their need, if they don't understand the truth of how sinful they are. And here in John 2, we see that Jesus has full knowledge of our hearts. So even if we don't have knowledge of our own hearts, like these people who say, I'm a good person, Jesus understands your heart, and he understands the heart of everyone. And this truth should make us feel Two things, and you might not expect that I'm going to say what these two things are. The first one is great humility. That, you probably understand that, and we should feel great humility because Christ knows what's in your heart. The second thing we should feel is great hope. 
We should have great hope because Christ knows what's in your heart. How many of you have ever heard people say, I have to go with my heart, to trust my heart, making this decision based on how I feel. Uh, I just feel like it's the right thing to do. Most Christians usually cringe when people say stuff like that. But what does the Bible tell us about our hearts? Paul in Romans 3 tells us, no person seeks God. That should tell you enough about your heart right there. If you don't seek God, if you don't want God, guess what? You're not a good person. Paul goes on to say more beautiful things about our hearts. Our hearts produce speech that is full of death. Your mouth is like an open grave, just speaking things that produce death all the time. Your tongue is like a, like a little sliver of poison, spitting venom everywhere. And we have no fear of God. Now, this language does not produce self-esteem, right? It doesn't produce happy feelings, but it does produce something that we desperately need. Humility and the recognition that we are in need and we are dependent. Jesus said, those who are well have no need of a, of a physician, but those who are sick do. Now, when Jesus says that, he's not saying some people are sick in their sin and some people are well. What he means by that is that only those who recognize that they are sick will go to a physician. If you think you're well, the physician does you no good because you don't think that you need him. And I know that we can kind of overdo going to the doctor, right, in the modern times. Get a stuffy nose, go to the doctor. Uh, but there are people that do the opposite. I actually have relatives who will never go to the doctor no matter, no matter how sick they are because they don't trust doctors. No offense, Howard. <laughs> you can trust Howard. <laughs> and, you know, I kind of, these relatives are older than me, so I, I kind of have some fears that, that they're just going to let something go. And they're just going to believe that they're fine and they're not going to go to the doctor and it's going to become something serious. Well, in the Gospels, the relatives who think they are perfectly healthy and have no need of a, of a physician are the Pharisees. They misdiagnose themselves as spiritually healthy while they are spiritually terminal. But I would even go as far as to say is that, that there's still even great hope for the Pharisee, for the person who thinks they're okay. And I think we see that hope in this text as we examine Jesus' love of, of true religion and true hearts. You see, Jesus could have walked in the temple. He could have seen all those insincere hearts, people who were proud, people who were irreverent, people who were just following for external reasons, the greedy people, maybe the merchants who were, who were trying to take advantage of people. And he could have said, you are on your own. I am not wasting my energy on you. I can see in your heart, and it's disgusting. Why would I waste my time on you? But Jesus took the time to correct these people. 
And the text says Jesus did not entrust himself to them. And what I think that means is that he was not influenced at all by them endearing themselves to him for the wrong reasons. Jesus as a pastor does not have a flaw that I have as a pastor. Someone who is insincere or fake could come up to me and say nice things to me and stroke my ego, and I might be tempted to entrust myself to that person for the wrong reasons, for my own sinful reasons. But Jesus doesn't have that problem. Jesus knows hearts, and Jesus cares more about healing that sinful heart than he cares about his own or anybody else's ego. As we picture the scene in our minds of Jesus snapping the whip at people, throwing over tables, giving harsh words about not making his father's house a house of commerce, we look at that and we might think, that's harsh. And it is. It is harsh. But it's grace. Jesus cared enough to give the grace of discipline. I probably use this illustration a lot, but I can't help but think about my mother when I think about good discipline. When I was, when I was young, maybe four or five, we were, we were in Hendersonville at a relative's house. I was playing with a neighbor kid, and, and I walked down to, into, into downtown with this kid, and, you know, I was there playing, played in the parking lot of a KFC, Yes, kids, KFC existed back then. <clears throat> and when I got back, my mom took me by the hand. She walked me into the house. And let's just say she administered some memorable corporal punishment. And when she was finished, I'll never forget, her tears flowed with, or her eyes flowed with tears. And she just held me. That was grace. That was the grace of discipline. My mother cared more about training my heart to obey to keep me safe than she cared about my feelings in that moment. And that discipline, I wouldn't say made me perfectly obedient. Of course not. I was a little brat lots of times. But it did give me a healthy fear of disobeying in ways that would make me unsafe. And I believe Jesus' discipline did the same thing. In John 3, we are introduced to a man that you're all familiar with, a Pharisee named Nicodemus. Now, I can't prove this without a shadow of a doubt, but it would be very difficult to think that Nicodemus was not in the temple on the Passover and he's a Pharisee. So more than likely, Nicodemus witnessed this, this event of Jesus disciplining people in the temple. And I think it caused him to start to see his need. It caused him maybe to start thinking, am I playing games with God? Am I pursuing God for all the wrong reasons? Do I only care about externals? Maybe Jesus has something that I need. 
And that could be what drove him to go to Jesus by night in chapter 3. Now, it might be a little terrifying to know that Jesus sees the wickedness in our hearts. One of the most terrifying passages to me is Hebrews 4, I think it is, where it talks about the eyes of God, that you're naked and exposed before him. But just as we would want a physician to be able to see everything inside of us that might harm us, we would want our doctor to have full knowledge of what's going on in our body so he could cure us. We also want the great physician to have that kind of knowledge. And we can thank God that the one who wants to heal your soul can look in there and see all the little soul diseases that you have, and he knows how to cure them. Now, in closing, let's have to say one thing real quick, kind of side note. Those of you who struggle with anger, don't take this, this sermon as an excuse that I'm, I'm going to use my anger to confront everybody. Jesus got angry here, yes, but I don't think it happened very often, and, uh, and he is Jesus. So I'm, I'm always afraid of thinking, is this righteous anger? Like, I don't know, I don't know completely how to, how to parse that out, so just be careful with your anger. Uh, but what I really want to say in closing is I want to go back to the concept of Jesus as the temple. Jesus did not come to abolish religion because the entirety of the religious ceremonies of the Old Testament and the New Testament are meant to point to Jesus. The temple, the offerings, the cleansing rituals, they were not meant to atone for sin. They were meant to foreshadow the only one who could atone for sin. In the New Testament, we have baptism, the Lord's Supper, corporate worship, church government, discipline, prayers, singing of songs. These things have a similar purpose. The, uh, the affirmation that Dan read talked about how the Old Testament saints, through the shadows, trusted in Christ, and those things were... Uh, trying to find an easy word to use besides effectual. <laughs> they, 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 were, they were used by God to atone for their sins, that, that faith. Now, in the New Testament, we have ceremonies, Lord's Supper, prayer, what we're doing right now. Worship is kind of like a ceremony. And the confession says that those old ceremonies had, had greater external glory. And what that means is that there was more precision, more pomp, I guess you could say, uh, and there were more of them. But they had less internal glory. And what I think that means is that in the New Testament, we have more simple means of grace, but they have greater internal spiritual efficacy. But that's only because we have all of this. That's the big difference. We have the New Testament and we have the full revelation of who Jesus Christ is. And so we have, we have that advantage over the Old Testament saints. So Jesus does not hate these components of religion. He hates it when they start to stray away from their true purpose. 
Their purpose is to glorify him, to teach the gospel, to increase faith, to promote sanctification, to teach us to love one another, and to give us a concern for the lost. If our religion ceases to do these things, it becomes the opposite of what James says. It becomes defiled and impure, and Jesus wants to correct it. So I would just ask you right now to reflect on your own heart. Think about how you approach worship. Don't think, don't do this, don't think, boy, somebody else needs to hear this. That's how a Pharisee thinks. Consider how you need to hear this. On the one hand, so here's the, here's the one error on this side. Do you care more about everything being perfect in worship? Do you care mostly about the outward things? Does the, does the baby crying in the background drive you so nuts? That's one of the things that I teach in, in my basics classes, that you have to learn how to endure the babies. We should be okay with, with caring about those children enough that we want them in here. And there's, there's tons of other examples of ways that we all act like Pharisees, all of us. On the other hand, so on, in the other ditch, do you hate the religious components? Do you hate the, the order, the structure? Have you bought into this, we've got to tear all institutions down mentality? Well, it's hard to say I love Jesus while claiming to hate all the things that he established. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. In that one verse, I feel like we have the convergence of religion and relationship, and they go together. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Jesus cares about both. They go together. And no matter where you fall on the spectrum, if you're a Pharisee, if you're a rebellious zealot, you can still take hope in the fact that Jesus knows how to correct your heart. He knows how to align it with the Word, and His Spirit will do this in just the right way. He might not do it in a second. He doesn't, he doesn't sanctify most things in an instant. But if you ask him, he will begin to slowly transform your heart and help you to love sincere worship while at the same time loving the means of grace that God has established for you. Amen.